Welcome to the Brewing Podcast. This is episode 37. We are continuing our conversation with uh, Isaac Cronin. If you recall last episode, we basically reached through about 1966. Uh, we, were, we were sort of in the thralls of the free speech movement, but really what we're talking about is Berkeley in the middle of the 60s. And uh, yeah, and so let's begin. Isaac. Hi there. Um, good evening. So I wanted to go back and touch again on what I thought was uh, kind of a turning point uh, for the entire New Left movement, and also um, a kind of paradigm creator for what I think, in some ways, is one of the weaknesses of the current uh, radical movement in the United States, which has to do with the underdog and championing the underdog. Um, so I showed up in Berkeley. Um, I'd finished uh, high school early. I was 16 years old. I was wandering through... Um, campus a lot besides going to class and one of the things I realized uh, in comparison to now is that there really wasn't any way to experience uh, that atmosphere except in the first person you really had to you didn't have any real media tools uh, when when the um, free speech movement um, started in December I'd been there three months and I was kind of a lost kid but I I had my eyes open, and that was really what you had. You literally had your own experience. You would walk through the courtyard, the Sproul Plaza, and you would see the... In my walk, I would walk by the fraternity boys, and they were called Freddies and Sallies, and they had a very rigid outfit. All the fraternity boys wore Madras shirts from a TV show called Dobie Gillis. They all wore white jeans. They all wore either saddle shoes or penny loafers, and they all sat according to a very rigid hierarchy uh, around in the benches. And the sorority girls would be on the other side kind of like at a dance, and they all wore pleated skirts with plaids and sweaters and knee socks and penny loafers. And you would walk by this very vivid display of conservatism. They were the, you know, they were the Republicans. They, were yeah. the, they would have been the young Republicans, or they were the young Repo- Republicans. And you walk through Sather Gate, and there was this spread of tables, uh, and these memories are so vivid because vivid, they were my memories. They really wasn't... Was that the north side of the gate or the south side of the let's gate? Let's see. Uh, the, the fraternity, sorority people were on the north side, uh-huh. uh, right where Dwinnell Hall is. Uh-huh. Um, and then you would walk through the gate, and then all of a sudden you would, there would be this sea of difference. There would be this vast area of, of political tabling. And quite often by then, there were... Um, uh, speakers, demonstrations, whatever. But my point is, you there literally there was no media covering it. There was no internet. There was nothing. You only had this very immediate first person experience. So even if you weren't active in the sense that you hadn't you know made a commitment, and I was very young and I was sorting things out at that point. I mean, I certainly wasn't against it, but I didn't quite understand it. And I think part of that is because the term free speech movement is deceptive in some ways, because it really wasn't so much about free speech, although that was the, the initial element, was taking away the right to, to have free speech. Uh, you had to form your own opinion. You had to really, you know, you, you experience this very viscerally and firsthand. And I think, you know, that can't be overemphasized as a way to actually... You were a citizen, even if you were you were there in real time, even if you didn't necessarily commit to the cause at that moment. Everyone had their own take on this, and every and so, and then and Berkeley extended from that point down uh, Telegraph Avenue, which was very vivid. Can you talk a little bit about what was the same and what was different about Telegraph Avenue? Because almost anyone who visits Berkeley visits that stretch of road. Mm-hmm. What was the same? What was different compared to it today? Okay, so it was. There was no uh, really non-student presence there. It was very minimal. There was no. There, there were no street people. There were no. Uh, there were the no homeless. Out. There were no vendors. It was a series of uh, a lot of bookstores, a lot of record stores, and three art house movie theaters, which was wow. almost unheard of. So at that point, you couldn't see a foreign film in the United States unless you lived in a few small. Uh, university communities. There was no way. There was no television. There was no. There was only. What were a, they called? 
Uh, one was called the Cinema, one was called the Guild, and later there was um, the Telegraph Repertory Theater. That was in 69. That was run by Tom Luddy, who later ran the Pacific Film Archive and the Telluride Film Festival and the illustrious Pauline Kael. So you had these. But more importantly, actually, I think in a way, there were several coffee houses. One was called the Forum, which is long gone, mm-hmm. the corner of Haste and Telegraph. And the other was the Med, which is still there. Mm-hmm. And literally, you felt like you were in Paris. There would be people talking till they closed at 2 in the morning, not drinking, drinking coffee. And you, would, you could hear conversations that were very serious. And it was a very animated street where dialogue was taking place, you know, very intensely. And it, but it didn't have a homeless vibe. No. It didn't have a no. spare change I mean, the, vibe. No, the, the, it had the vibe of, like, okay, there's discount records on the corner of Bancroft and Telegraph that only sold and played jazz and classical records and had giant speakers playing the jazz out under the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. So you really had this kind of bebop, post-beatnik, Greenwich Village, I think, is probably the only other comparable, and it didn't have the university element there, but I mean, in some ways, it it was more interesting, less academic, but those were really the only alternatives. So, essentially, um, I really like, I relate really well, because I was there, to the SI critique of uh, the free speech movement in um, On the Poverty of Student Life, which was published initially in French in 1966 and then translated quickly into English in 1967. And I mentioned previously I came across it then. Basically what, what they said was that the free speech movement started out as a, as a fairly profound critique of uh, American life and student life in particular. Basically, Mario Savio, in one of his speeches, which is not as often quoted, said that we know what you guys are up to. You're creating a managerial... Uh, technocracy to run the factory workers and others, and you want us to do that, and we don't want that job. I mean, I, you know, it's shocking to look back now and see that that was actually being said, you know, in some ways at the beginning of the process. And IBM was considered to be the uh, consummate enemy corporation. P- students kept saying, you know, because back then they had punch cards that came out of computers, and you went and got your punch card, and that was you. Literally, it was like something they would never do now because it was too literal. We don't want to be a punch card. We and what's more, there was a you know a really dramatic critique of computers and of computer technology as being ultimately the goal of that was to be dehumanizing. The goal of it was to create robotic behavior. The goal of it was to uh, create monodes, and there was a direct refusal of that. Uh, role, future role of people, students. They were really saying, we don't want to fit in into the world that you're creating. And the university was seen as being completely com- complicitous in this process. Mm-hmm. They were helping. Their goal was basically to eliminate, the tr- was to suppress the traditional concept of the university. And the university, as in the great tradition of great universities of Europe and America, where the goal was to create not employable people. That was not ever the traditional goal of education, at least in the 19th century, but to create people who were capable of independent and critical thought, who were well-rounded, who were questioning, who were probing. And so, basically, this idea of education, the last use that it was put to, in a way, the last noble use, was in the free speech movement. Mm-hmm. People were people were actually doing what they mm-hmm. were supposed to do as intelligent, real students, which was question everything in, in the most general terms. That's what was going on there. So, the, I mean, this was the last hurrah, uh, in my opinion, of the great uh, tradition of, you know, if academia ever meant anything, it was, you know, that last burst, outburst at the free speech movement. That's, that's kind of how, how I'm lo- looking back on it. So the SI basically said something very close to that. They, and, so, and they also said that the next step, which followed, which was 1965, you know, the, I was looking back at the st- statistics today. Actually, there was a delay factor because by 1965, there were already 300,000 troops in Vietnam. So the, the movement, you can peg the, the, the radicality of the movement directly to the size. Of course, it makes sense because it was coming home. People were dying. So in the, in the spring of 1965, all of a sudden, for me at least, I started seeing these posters for the Vietnam Day Committee events in, in the student union. And essentially, at that moment... Actually, explain for a second. Uh, for people who are of military recruitment age, the right. draft had basically not begun yet. It was just beginning. So what did it mean 
for a, a student at University of California at Berkeley. So you're asking me a question which I was going to answer yes. as it came into my life in the next. It was happening right away next mm-hmm. year. Okay, so so there was so there was this period. Excuse me, 1965. You've got this new movement, and they're saying basically that the 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 war has created uh, that this is you know the word imperialism was finally showing up outside of you know Leninist text. The word imperialism entered the American mainstream at that point, mm-hmm. and so basically the idea was. Well, we know the idea. You know, there are colonies, and they're exploited, and they're super exploited. And the uh, th- the third world was that was a term that came into into use right around that time, um, partly from Franz Fanon. The third world was the home of the of the true proletariat, the true oppressed, and so literally almost overnight this critique of university life of daily life of the american nightmare of the air conditioned nightmares what henry miller called it of suburbia all of that critique was put aside and the thrust became we really are responsible for the people who are our our, our brothers and sisters overseas who are suffering in part because we're doing so well here. So the concept of guilt was introduced at the same time. And, and paternalism. And paternalism, absolutely. We can no longer spend time on this other movement that we were involved in, this critique of the university. Mm. We really have to um, enter into a battle to... Uh, destroy imperialism and help save the lives of these people who are being uh, horribly victimized. And of course, this is all true. But but what was really, I think, essential? I mean, th- there was no plotting. There was no uh, masterminds of capitalism saying we need to divert these people from it. But but what happened, even though that wasn't the necessary necessarily the intent of anyone, was that this profound critique that was really getting to the to the core of capitalism was put aside for a much more political and much less social attack on the system. And that continued uh, literally pretty much through the end of the new left. That, that really mm-hmm. determined the character. So the, but what, what was unfortunate is that the critique of daily life as such was taken up by the counterculture. In other words, it, w- it was not it was not simply put aside. There was a kind of roundabout, um, sweet, uh, gentle, naive critique of daily life that was entered into by the counterculture. And it's almost impossible to overemphasize how deep the antagonism was between the politicos uh-huh. and the hippies. They had almost nothing in common. I mean, they might have shared some drug use, but even the interpretation of drugs and their supposed consequences and their, and their usefulness as a critique of society were were not held in common at all. So there was that opening there because obviously the uh, fake optimism of the first 20 years after World War II and the uh, forced the the, the uh, compulsive consumption that was required and the uniformity of da- of daily life, especially in the suburbs, was pretty much intolerable and and it it couldn't go on uncontested. So at that point, the left in some ways gave up the critique of that part of uh, the core, I think, of, of what it should have been criticizing and handed over to the, to the hippies, essentially. Mm. And their approach was, well, we don't really like what's going on, but if we come up with an... That's why it was called the counterculture, obviously. If we don't really like what's going on, and if we come up with a better vision, if we come up with a more um, human, playful, interesting way to live, somehow the other... Part of the the old world is just going to wither away and die. So there was a brief period in which uh, they kind of had co power over the the youth movement. But you know, calling somebody a hippie even by 1967 was an insult. Mm. If you were a radical, mm. the idea that you would somehow passively accept what was going on in order to create uh, some kind of utopian radical alternative um, was really held in great contempt by the radical movement. And did you have any connections to the Midwest? Because it seems like did this I? is exactly the kind of uh, distinction that like happens five to ten years slower in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. At, you know, whereas the Midwest probably, and I, I can tell from my own father's experience uh-huh. thought that being a hippie was as radical as you could get really by and large yeah yeah so no i didn't i mean i 
The only time I went out there is for a later story. I went out to Wisconsin, actually, but near Madison, so it's not really the same. I mean, we really lived in this kind of bubble then, yeah. right? I mean, we didn't. I, I mean, I, I'm embarrassed. This, I mean, I drove across country a couple times, but literally, my life was between uh, the Bay Area and New York. <laughs> the rest of the country didn't even exist. Anyway, okay, so. And I was thinking back today, because, I mean, obviously, I haven't thought about this a lot. Um, it's so ingrained in my personality. But I was thinking about it today, and what I was thinking about in part was it was a great era for costumes. It was like people had been people had been forced to, you know, I mean, you notice I brought up the fraternity sorority costume. Mm-hmm. But people had been, in general, you know, there was an, another way in which everyone dressed the same. When you got to Berkeley in 1964, the FBI, the professors, and the students all dressed in that same kind of, yeah. you know, uh, narrow tie, white shirt, dark suit. The IBM outfit that people made fun of, the man in the gray flannel suit, was actually a very uniform way of dressing. Mm-hmm. And there was this cultural explosion that took place. Um, right around this time, literally, where the outfits expanded out. Now, the political politico's outfit initially at Berkeley was very narrow. You had uh, you wanted to dress like a worker, so you wore jeans and a work shirt, a blue denim work shirt. And then, if you were uh, wanted to be really cool, you had a, a tweed cut with patches and a beret or an English working man's cap, and you smoked a pipe. And this was like, and you had a green book bag, and that meant you were radical, and that was the look. But quickly, the, you know, it, I, this was all happening over months, not years, yeah. right, this explosion, because the drugs hit, and then things changed within months. The Beatles didn't have that much to do with it, but they were a little bit, slightly instrumental. But then the, 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 um, the haberdashery changed so that if you were a hippie, you had to have, like, part of your wardrobe was Native American, Part of your wardrobe was like an ashram Indian outfit. Part of your wardrobe was Elizabethan English. Oh, God. And, and you were constantly wearing costumes. Mm-hmm. And you were constantly changing costumes. And it was just really um, hysterical. I mean, it was just yeah. a wild circus atmosphere. And it was especially wild in contrast to what had come before, which was just, you know, this suburban life where, you know, the choices were very narrow. So um, I moved to Santa Cruz from Berkeley uh, for some, what I thought was important academic reason, which was that I was interested in Freud and it wasn't taught at Berkeley. They only taught behavioral psychology and they did teach it at Santa Cruz. But I remember one of the first days that I was in um, Santa Cruz, I decided, along with one of my friends who was much more into it, that the way to be really cool and hip and also radical was to look, act, and dress like a real worker, like a blue-collar worker, not a, you know, not an office worker, but a blue-collar worker. So he, my friend, uh, was very romantic, and he thought, well, what's the meanest, toughest thing you can do to make a living in this ta- in this here town it was to be a commercial fisherman it was like dangerous dirty right so he decided he wanted to do that and i kind of went along just for the adventure so i can remember and monterey was still an active yeah it was still monterey moss landing santa cruz were all mainly monterey was still an active commercial port which it i mean it still barely is compared to what it was in the in the 40s the the fishery has, has disappeared for various reasons, but there was still a fishery. Yeah. In this case, it was squid. So I remember walking on campus, uh, wearing after having actually been up fishing, wearing you know all blue jeans and, and a work shirt and rubber boots covered with fish scales. <laughs> and the whole point was just to show these spoiled middle class kids. Most of them were from West Los Angeles, you know, really spoiled brat kids at Santa Cruz at that point. That like we were the workers, that we were the real deal. That you know we were really of the you know the salt of the earth, right? Which we weren't, but you know we were acting. So once again, it was like a costume, and there was I I realized how much role playing was going on in that period. I mean, even more than now, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was was something that just it just occurred to me. So that was our costume, was the workers' costume. So now let's get to the draft. So basically, uh, as the war escalates, I think it's four hundred thousand by sixty seven. Uh, going up to eventually the high point, 550,000 by 68. The numbers keep getting bigger. The, the, the pressure is more intense. The draft is, everyone's feeling the heat. So what, what I guess people don't really get, because it's impossible to imagine that your life could be taken over and you could die uh, six months after you graduate from college, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it, there's no comparable experience is how intense this was. So it, it was really an incredibly 
um, multi-dimensional radical, radicalizing experience because you had, you know, the existential choice that you were going to have to make. You had your role is, uh, you know, a spoiled middle-class kid in society. You had uh, moral issues. You had, a, you know, as you studied it, there was, you know, you didn't want to be part of an occupying army. I mean, it was a very unique kind of social existential experience that just captivated you and it became an obsession. I mean, there were, there were so many discussions, uh, mostly among men, but with women, you know, concerned. What were you going to do? Were you going to go to Canada? Were you going to get out of the draft? Were you going to try and get a conscientious objector's ex um, exemption? Nobody that I knew intended to go or went in this entire universe. So that coincided with one of the great um, moments of resistance in the United States which was um, the attempt to close induction centers around the United States, and that was 1967. So there was an induction center in Oakland uh, on Clay Street, uh, where what that was was the Northern California Induction Center. So basically the, the setup was if you weren't um, in, the, in the university, at the age of 18 you got your induction notice, you went to this place, you took your physical, uh, you either passed or failed. If you passed two months later, you were sent to uh, a base such as Fort Ord, which is now closed, uh, on the Monterey Peninsula, and you went through basic training and you went to war or you went wherever. Um, you got a deferment until you were finished with your undergraduate degree or four years after you'd started the college process. There was none of this taking, you know, extra, you know, fewer wow. units. There was none. It was timed. They were, this was a mechanical process. They knew how many people they had to get. They knew how they had to get them. So you had, you had four years to finish your degree. The only deferment that was allowed other than that was if you were a, in medical school. Law school mm -hmm. didn't count, graduate school. There was no fooling around. You just got your notice. Um, on that moment. Anyway, so the induction center, they tried to close it down. They chained themselves to the doors. There were thousands of people there. I was there. Um, most of my friends decided that to prove their point, they wanted to get arrested. Um, a lot of them did. Hundreds of people got arrested. I didn't. My thinking was, I don't really want those people to have control over me. I just, I didn't, I felt like I was there. I was doing whatever. Uh, but I didn't feel like, you know, I needed to go to jail to prove a point. Um, anyway, they, they, a lot of them went to jail. They didn't succeed in closing the induction center, but it was one of the, the memorable events, and a lot of the people who later became leaders in the left were made their mark there, were, were arrestees there. Um, and and uh, name a couple names, because the Southern California was that Tom... There was Frank Bardicke, uh -huh. uh, was one. I think he's still around. I think he became an activist. Um, he's the one. Dan Siegel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, these are all political guys. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, that was their, where they were born, really, mm -hmm. is in the Oakland Induction Center. Anyway, so there was a movement called the Resistance, which was Resist the Draft, started by David Harris. Joan Baez was a seminal figure in this. She was, she was a seminal. She was everywhere. She was the, the female version, and she was actually the dream of every mm -hmm. male activist. The, the you know... The long-haired, beautiful voice, um, passionate protester, and she and David Harris became a couple. So, and they would come to Santa Cruz, and of course, everyone was with them there. I mean, every, they didn't really have to recruit. And there was the symbolic burning of the draft card, which I don't think really meant very much because you didn't really need your draft card, <laughs> like your social security card. Like, who still has it, right? Mm -hmm. you know, once you know your number, you know they knew your number. They knew where to find you. Anyway, so. I, jumping ahead a bit, um, so I got my induction notice because I graduated from college in June of 1968, so it's probably August. I got my notice, and you went. they picked you up in Santa Cruz on this dreary bus. This was like the worst bus ride of my life, you can imagine, right? There's 60 people on the bus, this bus that they send for you, all of them going to take their induction physical. Wow. You know, this is like the Woody Allen movie. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's really, really grim. However, in my world, there were people who told you that certain doctors were totally against the war, and you could go find one, and you could go see him. They wouldn't take any money. They refused to accept a penny. Um, there was one in Palo Alto. I've forgotten his name. A uh, very kind guy. And I, I went to see him the first time, and he said, Well, I do not want you to go to the war. So I will write you a letter. But only if you tell me something that's really wrong with you, and I'll exaggerate it. 
I won't make up something out of nothing. Uh-huh. That's just too much. Okay. So I thought, well, I've been fishing. I had a bad back. I mean, I did. I had a bad back, you know, because I was pulling in the nets. So he said, well, let's see. Okay, that's good. Um, that makes sense, but we need to make it a little worse. So I think you have to have a slip disc because a slip disc can't be doesn't show on an X-ray. And he said, and I have a colleague at Palo Alto in Stanford who is one of the top orthopedic guys in the United States who teaches there, and he'll write you a letter too. Um, so I had like a portfolio of letters. Mm-hmm. I had a back brace. Um, you know, so you're could, on the bus with the back brace. On. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I was a mess for that day, right? <laughs> So, you know, I mean, I mean, I have to admit, this is, this is something that came from, I, w- I don't know if I would call it privilege, but I would call it, you know, an in, a very intelligent environment that allowed me to have this. And I know there are probably plenty of people who, if they'd had this opportunity, would have taken it. Of course. I was fortunate. I was really fortunate. And, and I didn't, I got a 1Y, not a 4F. But the... Well, what's the difference? One uh, Y is that, you know, they could call you up at some point you, if they really need uh-huh. you, but, you know, the war ended. And 4F is you're never going to be called back. Right. So, you know, I felt really lucky. But um, I went there, and it was just bedlam. Uh, the place was bedlam. I mean, people were doing everything. It was like truly like a madhouse. It was chaotic. It was loud. People were acting out. Because uh, they were trying to start their process. At that moment. At they, that moment, they, right. They, they were literally not without doctor's letters, and mm-hmm. they were really trying to start. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people would take their clothes off. People would try, you know, people would, you know. Would, it was like an episode of MASH. Yeah, it was like people were yelling, I love the Viet Cong. I want them to win. You know, traitorous statements. Yeah. You know, they would just say, you know, I mean, there, there were some amazing stories. And one of my friends who was this kind of, kind of marble manish guy with a drawl, said, what do you think about this? What do you what do you think if if I go to this my physical and I say the same sentence over and over again without stopping for ten hours? Do you think it will work? And I said, Well, I don't know. What's what what are you gonna say? He said, What about if I say I'm an old cowpoke but I don't smoke? And this guy, after five hours, they threw him out. Wow. I mean, it was, it was pretty brilliant. <laughs> it, re- it really was. It was like guerrilla theater. I mean, he saved his own life as far as I'm concerned. Sure. I mean, he just came up with that one phrase, and, and they just couldn't stand it. And so another you know, kind of interesting story that goes ahead to the, to the um, council later, the group that I was in in 1970, is that one of the future members um, who's he won't mind me using his name. His name is Paul Mann. He discovered that there's a chart, and the chart is, okay, uh, there's probably a chart on the high end, too, obesity, but on the lower end, there's also a chart, and he was very skinny. So if you're 6'3", which he was, and you weigh under 135 pounds, which is emaciated. Very skinny. Very skinny. But they made it tough, right? This was not... They wanted you, right? Of course. There's none of this flat feet get you out. This is just a complete fabrication. Mm-hmm. You know, so he, years later, we were, you know, he actually became eligible in 1970. He graduated later. He decided to try and lose the weight. So uh, for a month, he didn't eat. Oh. I mean, this was life or death. I mean, this is how we sure. took it. I mean, people really have to understand. I mean, people were dying, you know, in big numbers. Not like now. I mean... Um, and so for the first four days, we all fasted with him. There were six of us, and to, just to get him, give him a send off, which I think was cool. You know, we, we were we wanted, and he made it. But when he came back from his physical, he he, he couldn't walk. I mean, he was literally, you know, on, not on his deathbed. I mean, he's drinking water, but sure. you know, he was. So anyway, I mean, that's kind of the extreme on the other end. So. Um, so we're in '67. Uh, the, the high point. There, there were there were demonstrations growing and growing. Obviously, we 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 didn't really want to participate in those because we thought we got lost in the crowd, pretty much. But so then we get to 1968, and um, that's the year that um, the world sees as as the great year of youthful revolt, post World War II, kind of the high point of radical activity definitely since then because you've got many many countries active besides the US you've got France you've got Germany you had many many uh, hundreds if not thousands of people killed in Mexico um, in protest um, a lot's going on all over the world and of course uh, probably the biggest thing is and there was there was a major event in Chicago 
and probably the biggest revolt for us was France because that was the one time where there really did seem to be an alliance between uh, students, students and intellectuals the and the workers. Um, that happened rarely in the U.S. I mean, you could say through the civil rights movement. Oh, I did. I want to go back a bit. The the other thing that was really important in 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 nineteen sixty seven, leading up to sixty eight, were the Black Panthers. Can't leave that out in the Bay Area. I mean, no matter what you think about them, they had a huge presence. They were very powerful and very charismatic, and even the people like me who were already leaning towards a libertarian critique had to um, admire their courage in terms of confronting the police and uh, mobilizing a lot of people. But once again, I think the costume is important. Uh You know, the costume is important because they were the ones who figured out you didn't have to really look like Che, like you didn't have to wear the combat, I mean, obviously he wore him because he was in combat, but you didn't have to do the jungle suit, you, you know, the jungle sure. jungle wear. You could. They, they came up with a new look. The new look was this urban gorilla kind of thing where you could have the great leather coat, you know, and the turtleneck, and the combat boots, and the uh, the beret and still pull it off and that was and I don't mean to diminish it but I do think these things are important mm-hmm. the theatricality of it it was like a great draw for people I mean the guns helped but the look was really really important and so as sheepish as we were about participating in this because we knew this was really in terms of the actual content of what they were saying it was completely reformist and um you know, they wanted soup kitchens and after-school programs. I mean, we knew this was not... Um, I mean, even in comparison to the other movements in Africa and in Algeria and other places, this was clearly not a radical program. But I can remember going to a demonstration at the Federal Building when Huey Newton was in jail and yelling, along with like several thousand other people, free Huey or the sky's the limit. And I kept turning to people saying, do we know what that means? <laughs> the sky's the limit, but what does that really mean? What's going to happen? Like, you know, what are we really going to do if they don't free them, right? I mean, it was a really, I mean, it was kind of a hustle. I mean, it was a, you know, sure. they really, it was a, it was what a, most activism is. Yeah, exactly, of course. But I mean, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you know, you just, and you're, well, I wasn't, you know, I was almost like not even 20 years old. So, but I mean, you're still thinking like, this is just so much bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is just, you know, silly. And that was right around the time when we just start, started discovering the anarchist critique because it was showing up. So we started finding, and the main form of that at that point was Bookchin-style anarchism. Mm-hmm. And he didn't take those people on, you know, in a sharp way. It was more a general critique of hierarchy based on sure. the Bolshevik Revolution. And how could he? I mean, he lived in yeah. Vermont. and they lived Yeah, he in, didn't know what yeah. this kind of street culture, what was really going on. But by then there was this, you know, there was a whole bunch of very authoritarian leftist organizations. They were all small, but they were out there. They were trot. They were all the different sects. There was uh, Baba Vakian was around, the Trotskyist, and they were all, you know, the main thing is they were having no fun and they were filled with jargon. So even in Santa Cruz, we started developing a critique of that movement right around '68. We started, and so yeah, what was your proximity to SDS? Well, we like the, you know, looking back, like the early SDS statements, the, the original statement was really kind of a almost liberal social democrat anti-authoritarian Which, statement. What year was that? 63, I think. That was Tom Hayden and Todd Gitlin were the players then. I mean, that was kind of, that was pretty, I mean, that period, you know, you tie it to the FSM before... Before the Vietnam War started, mm-hmm. when there was it was really about something different, mm-hmm. you know, it was really about um, daily life and about uh, social relationships. Was but, a, but a Vakian, he he was a beneficiary of one of the splits that came out of SDS. Right, right. but by then, you know, it was already a, a different organization. Uh-huh. But I mean, SDS became a much more uh, Bolshevik type group, or, or the, the members of it became, like Mark Rudd later at Columbia. These people were all pretty much traditional, an American version of, of Bolshevism. I mean, they didn't, they of course hated the Communist Party for being Stalinist, but they literally, you know, replayed the whole Russian Revolution post-20s mm-hmm. and 30s again in America. I mean, and that's why you can see why the counterculture was really also laughing at them, mm-hmm. because they were silly. I mean, you know, they were they were ridiculous, right? They they had just ridiculous authoritarian, unsexy behavior. Right. 
So that helped create that counterculture and gave it gave it impetus. Okay, so we're so we're in '68. Um, all these things happened. Um, my my best friend went off to Chicago. I didn't go. Um, I was working then, actually, uh, fishing. My best friend went off to Chicago. I uh, was a photographer and came back with an amazing portfolio of photographs and amazing stories of uh, what happened. Although, I mean, frankly, when you look back at it, I know it was the American version of 68, but there really wasn't a lot of radical content there. I mean, it was still all about protest. Yeah. It was all about, you know, trying to address the Democratic Party or saying they were irrelevant but still speaking to them. I mean, the whole thing didn't, at the time, seemed like a lot, but in retrospect, didn't really accomplish very much, mm -hmm. in my opinion. I mean, I know people got their heads bonked and, you know, they exposed, uh, they, they proved that, that uh, a mafioso like Mayor Daley is, a, is really a mafioso. But, I mean, there was a lot of people get, who got very badly hurt to make a very small point. Mm -hmm. But in the kind of overall romanticization of the time, it seems like it was a very profound moment. And, you know, the main thing is it, it disrupted the Democratic Convention, but not enough to make any difference. So, okay, we've got the, in the, the beginnings of our own little group in Santa Cruz, and there's a core that's starting to form, which later became the Council for the Eruption of the Marvelous, but we're all, we all agree that the left is becoming, that, you know, we believe in this idea that if it's boring and unpleasant and unhappy to be doing the activity, supposedly to help the Vietnamese and fight imperialism, there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, that kept, we kept saying that, why are we so unhappy doing what's supposed to be such an interesting activity? You know, mm -hmm. fundamentally, what's wrong with that? You know, that was what was gnawing at us. Um, and, of course, we'd kind of, we'd read the SI, you know, we knew about that critique, but somehow it was so hard to, because there was so much momentum in the direction of the anti-war movement, it was such a powerful stream by then, it was really difficult, even though you knew that fundamentally it was incorrect, to stand up against it. It wasn't that easy, you know. But... Um, Interestingly enough, we did find out about Up Against the Wall Motherfucker and their anti-art critiques, mm -hmm. and we were very excited by that. I mean, we'd been influenced by Godard, we'd seen his films, and of course, there is some pretty interesting critique of, of um, the, uh, radical art in there. But we, we were very excited by the motherfuckers, and we, tr and we actually corresponded with them. I don't have the correspondence, but we, we engaged with them. So there were these signs that there was an opposition to the left movement. But it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal in 68 because the stream was so strong. Although learning about what happened in Paris gave us fuel. But we, you know, we thought, well, maybe they're different. You know, America's backward. Are we ever going to be able to catch up with that? Because, you know, they have this long tradition that we don't have. So it was a little discouraging at that point. So then uh, I was telling you earlier, uh, everyone thought 68 was the big year. And I'm sure on the world stage it was. But for me, uh, 69 was actually... Uh, the year where everything kind of happened. Um, it was a very eventful period. Um, so another benchmark moment um, of the movement was People's Park. Just maybe I'll film a little bit of narrative about that just so people may, I mean, people may or may not remember. I mean, uh, outside of Berkeley, yeah, very few people know the history. Yeah, so essentially um, there was an area that the university owned behind Telegraph Avenue that they had kind of let go foul. They were intending to build... Was, it, was Amoeba still there? Or was it there that long? No. Okay. No. There was a coffee house there, the uh, the Forum. So it was at the, near the corner of Haste, behind one so block over from Cody's Books. So the, the Forum was right next door to the Met? Yeah, it was like a few stores in between. Okay. Right. They were just wall-to-wall yeah, -wall coffee shops. So there was, a, there was an area, a park, I would say it was probably like half an acre or something like that, maybe a little more that had been let fa go fallow because they were going to build dormitories there. And so uh, by the, so what happened, bringing you up to date on the street, on Telegraph Avenue, it pretty much went with the drugs. So LSD came and went. Uh, it never disappeared, obviously, but it was replaced in large part um, by meth as the drug of choice by 68, 69. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, all the drugs were around. And, and was it meth by pill? No, it was uh, people were shooting up. 
get down, get out of here, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, and so meth, the meth culture had taken over, took over the Haight Ashbury. I mean, even back then, people were saying that this was an intentional government uh-huh. uh, conspiracy to to hook people on a drug that was destructive, because some people did find LSD to be subversive. I mean, in some ways, you know, and in, in some ways, you can make that case. I didn't mean to minimize the, the that, but you sure. know. It wouldn't be glow in the glow in the dark artwork if it wasn't for that's LSD. right, and all those yeah, yeah those Fillmore posters that are now <laughs> yeah. worth ten thousand dollars or whatever. So, um, uh, and there was the underground comics too. I mean, there, there was a, there was a culture that there's some in some ways there was bridging culture, including some of the underground cartoonists between those two groups. But okay, so you've got you've got Telegraph Avenue turning different right around that time. Reagan also um, closed the state mental hospitals. Uh, where it was in the '60s, I believe so. Yes, yeah. right, right around that moment. So, or maybe early. I, I think it was then. So then, because he was a disaster. So then, he was governor until what year? Was it '72? Okay, I'm not sure. Um, he was definitely governor then. So, so you've got this la- fallow land. People are occupying it. People are living in it, um, and they still are. Um, to this day, they let it go, and then the university decided. Some say arbitrarily they wanted to build dormitories right on that spot, and and they're really unhappy because basically there's post signs, uh, no trespassing, private property, and it's being trespassed on. So you've got Reagan and his governor trying to make his mark, um, and so they decided to take the land back um, one fine day, pretty much no warning. They put a fence up cyclone fence around it, people try and tear it down, they say this land now belongs to the people so the the mythology is like this is one of the first you know, the movement finally is making a critique of private property, mm-hmm. so we're back to the critique of the system in America, not the war in Vietnam, we've turned back right, this is a moment where it's turned back and that's powerful because, you know, people are you know, I think exhausted with this Vietnam War thing you know, I mean, how many times can you say uh, those slogans, or you know, you, you know, I mean, as horrible as the war was, you know, there was very little new content coming out in this critique at all. It was just repeating the same slogans. So here's a new turn, a new twist, and so you've got people uh, fi- are highly mobilized by this idea that finally some property that really belongs to us, the whole world belongs to us, but you know, we'll take it block by block. We're taking back the world from these guys. So, of course, Reagan can't let this stand. So there's protests, there's um, escalating protests. Reagan can't let it stand. So this starts the tradition of the running street battles on Telegraph. Yes, right. This is, this is and, but he, he completely ups the ante. So he brings in, actually what happened is the police did this first, the National Guard come later. So there's a bunch of demonstrations, and in one of them, a gentleman called James Rector is on top of a building uh, at the corner of Dwight Way. Actually, it's near the Telegraph Repertory Theater, the corner of Dwight Way and Telegraph. It's the southwest corner. It's up on the roof, and they shoot a tear gas canister up and, and kill him. Really? They hit him in the head, and he dies. So, wow, this is a huge deal. Somebody dies in Berkeley. This is long before Kent State. It's yeah. like people aren't dying that much. You know, yeah. African Americans are dying in riots in the ghettos, but like a lot of white people aren't dying. You know, yeah. they're just it's just not happening. It's very, you know, it may be violent like in Chicago, but I don't, nobody died in Chicago. That's true. I believe. Pretty sure we would know about it. Um, so, so James Rector dies, and all of a sudden things get huge. Where people are protesting everywhere. Um, so there's a big march that's organized against uh, state violence, and I remember going to a meeting in Berkeley at one of the leftist communes, and they're all saying, "Well, you know, how can you know we can't really appear to be manip- manipulating this? Are we just going to have a peaceful demonstration, or are we going to get violent?" And finally, they decide, "Well, you know, there's just too many people there; it's too dangerous." I th- there were ten or fifteen thousand people there. It was, it was a really big protest. So. The university, um, at that point, I think, felt that they'd gone too far. So Reagan, Reagan mm-hmm. literally called in the National Guard, and there were there are photographs of troops in People's Park with bayonets on their weapons and tanks in the streets of Berkeley. People don't realize he just went way over the top because you know no police or or, or soldiers were ever really badly hurt. This was just a show of brute force. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, it played into the hands of the of the left because he's saying you know really. 
when you say private property, we say we'll kill you, essentially, mm -hmm. if we have to. We, you know, forget about the games we're playing about, you know, all the, uh, you know, the student protests and all that. If you actually say this city belongs to us, we're going to take it back, and you do it, we're not going to let you do that. And, you know, I mean, everyone, in retrospect, even, you know, especially the liberal politicians said this was a stupid reaction, a complete overreaction. Sure. They, they did learn from it. Right. So, a couple of other things happened that year. I went to a conference called by the Bookchinist Anarchists. They decided to have a national conference. This was their zenith, their high point. They said, let's have a conference. So they said, well, we'll have it in the middle of the country, but what's a good place? So they had it in Black River Falls, Wisconsin, So I literally in, the, in a national park. Wow. So I literally went across the United States, because I was into this, to Black River Falls, and it was just a campground, and it was about maybe, it was probably 70, 80 people there, maybe even 100. And everyone was all camped out, and frankly, I don't remember much, because Murray Bookchin talked on and on. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the most interesting moments was on the very first night or day, these guys got up and they said, we're libertarians. We thought this was an anarchist conference, like as in uh, Ayn Rand, and we're right-wing um, anarchists. And we want to say, we want a show of hands, who thinks that Karl Marx was the biggest asshole who ever lived? And at that point, people chased them out. <gasps> they, they were gone. They forced no them way. to leave. Yes. They were going to beat them up. That was Holy it. Holy shit. They came all the way across the United States from somewhere in California, and they ran for their lives. It was a great wow. moment. It's the moment I remember. Sure. Yeah. It would have yeah. been nice if everyone agreed that right. Marx was the biggest asshole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't. I mean, no. it was just like these guys hadn't really read him because sure. obviously, you know, they wouldn't have thought that, yeah, you know. Right. So They read the fountainhead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we were gathering strength as anarchist situation is kind of undifferentiated at that mm -hmm. point. So we decided to bring back the tradition of the SI. So in Santa Cruz, four of us who later became the counsel for the Eruption of the Marvelous created a work group and we wrote a brochure which is called a pamphlet which we handed out, printed thousands of, called the Nine Unnatural Acts of the University of California. And that was referring to the number of campuses, nine campuses of the uh -huh. MUC system. And it was very scatological, and it was very nasty, and very dark. And I think a lot of it was, and it was very poetic compared to uh, everything that was going on. And, you know, some ways repetitious of the, of the situationists, but in other ways, kind of the beginning of our Americanization of their ideas. Mm -hmm. So we formed this core group over that. Uh, I guess I'm getting near the end of the... Of the okay. okay. All right, so as a transition from that group, which was, you know, we'd given up the left at that point. We'd said, we've had enough, we're going off on our own. Our direction is going to be more towards the situationist. Something really powerful happened, which shaped the tone of our activity, which was that one of the uh, most liked and radical professors at Santa Cruz, um, I'll say his name, no problem, John Croyer, who was an anthropologist, uh, was one of those LSD victims. He took a lot of acid. He wandered away. He was married. He had a normal life till that point. He wandered away into the woods and one day blew his brains out with a shotgun. Really? And there was only 100 professors at Santa Cruz yeah. at that point. I mean, that was a big deal, right? Yeah. For, okay. So all the professors, among them a guy called Kenneth Tymon, who invented the core chemical that became Agent Orange, literally. He was the, build, mm -hmm. the building block for Agent Orange. Horrible. You know, war crime. Um... They all came to the Unitarian Church, and they all eulogized him, and they were all lying horribly. They were just lying to their teeth. They hated him because he was calling their bluff, saying they weren't really radical, that they were complicitous with the war effort, although not as much, say, as someplace like um, Stanford or Berkeley, but still, you know, they were complicitous. So they all basically, you know, lied in front of us, and we got really angry. We went back to our headquarters, our clubhouse, where we'd written the pamphlet, got really drunk and just said, fuck it, this is too much. Let's really, let's fuck with these guys. So as a group, we decided that we were going to write um, something which later became known as the Suicide Letter. So the Suicide Letter, in very kind of surrealistic, surrealistic flowery, uh, aggressive prose, said that these people were monsters and liars and that we suggested that they start killing themselves at the rate of one, th one, one a month, and we assigned different professors to different months. And we um, put this letter, along with a razor blade for each of them, so they had an instrument to do it with, 
which had taped on it Tokyo Rose, who was the propagandist mm -hmm. for yeah. Japanese propaganda, signed with her name on it Tokyo Rose, and we we put this in the in the in the campus mail, and. Frankly, we didn't hear that much about it until a few months later when one of our colleagues who was involved, who um, hadn't graduated yet, uh, was called in uh, because what had happened was uh, the son of one of the professors who was named in the letter had been going through his book collection and opened up a book, an art book, just looking at it, and the letter fell out. So he, ran, he read it and ran screaming from the room to go tell his daddy what had happened. So his father, who was a well-known conservative philosophy professor, uh, called the FBI. He was going straight for the jugular. So our friend got called in, um, and they said, well, you know, you're facing dismissal, but what's more, this is the story he tells, and I believe him, he's, he's a friend of mine today, um, the FBI has been called, and frankly, they're down at the edge of campus, and we don't know whether we should let them up or not, but they considered this to be a matter of domestic terrorism. Because we'd use the mail, and we'd, you know, you know, I, I'm sure they're, I'm sure it's a felony, what we did. There's just no sure. question, right? And using the mail Especially for, today, but... Yeah, especially today. But back then, you know, it would have been pretty radical. Eventually, one of the more liberal professors came to his defense and said, well, you know, this is a noble tradition. He really didn't mean it. Uh, and the professor talked his way out of it because, you know, and, and the guy wasn't going to roll over on us because he wasn't. He was, you know, just not going to do that. But, I mean, frankly, I think if he had, I think we, I would have, I, we would have been arrested and possibly I would have, my life would be very different. I mean, because, sure. I mean, it was a pretty aggressive act to do. Um, so that kind of set the tone for next chapter, which is this group uh, was so inspired by that and by how much fun it was, frankly, that we decided to form a group in Berkeley to continue the activity. Cool. Well, thank you very much. Didn't yeah. have many questions. I'm sorry. I mean, I didn't you know. actually had an hour, 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 an hour of monologue. Yeah, sorry about that.